Welcome to Surviving Society. This season's broad theme is Imagining a new normal towards social justice. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform. Welcome to season nine of Surviving Society podcast. It's me, Chantelle Lewis and Tiso. We just want to put out a sort of disclaimer at the beginning of this series and episode to say that we are recording during the lockdown 23rd of April 2020 and we are currently in the global pandemic due to the coronavirus. We are really privileged to be able to carry on podcasting. We recognise that and we hope that we can use our platform to form and elevate as many issues as possible given this space that we have. We are going to be talking about aspects of the academy that we usually talk about on the podcast so it might be that there'll be episodes in this series that don't actually cover the coronavirus because we like to keep the podcast in line with it building on sort of a a virtual and audible reading list. First episode of this series we are really really excited to be joined by Janine Francois. Hi Janine. Hi. I'm particularly buzzing to have Janine on this episode because I'm a big, big fan of her scholarship. I first saw Janine speaking at the Anticipating Black Futures Conference back in 2019 that was organised by Rita Gale, Keisha B and Ian Sargent. It was incredible and Janine is an excellent orator and speaker. Janine Francois, curator, PhD researcher and lecturer. Hello Janine, tell us about your scholarship. Hey, okay. (laughs) I'm a final year PhD student. I'm on a collaborative doctoral partnership between Tate and the University of Bedfordshire and my research is practice-based. I'm looking at pedagogy and curatorial practice in how Tate can be a safer space to talk about race and cultural differences. So that has involved me creating moments of interventions in the last three years, um, creating workshop spaces for educators and working with um, gallery tour guides and other members of staff at Tate to kind of think about the site as this um, massive archive and repository of its relationship with colonialism and sugar production and how that informs a safe space for some people and not others, how that reinforces kind of, I guess, wider social attitudes of safety and unsafety, but also issues of like exclusion and inclusion as well. When I think of... Just as a Londoner, when I think of the kind of topography of London, I see the Tate as obviously modern art. And I never associate modern art with debates or narratives around colonialism. I would kind of associate the British Museum or the Natural History Museum or like obviously it's split into areas, right? So the Tate, I associate with modern art and there's a kind of split yeah, totally. Um, so what you're speaking to is art history and how art history kind of works as this evil, evil regime, um, to be very <laughs> honest with you. So m- museums are really strange places. So I think it's really easy for us to like, you know, point our fingers at like the British Museum and ethnographic museums where they collected objects through violence via colonial, you know, um, exploitation. Art museums haven't on a public scale, we haven't yet really interrogated that history of modern art, but also like many art museums, like the National Portrait, like Tate Britain, were founded Mm -hmm. on colonial money. Like these were people who had colony, well, who had um, plantations and were merchants and were funding colonial activities. It's not as overt and direct as like the British Museum, but they are also stained by these same kind of legacies as well. I think that's quite interesting because unless you are aware of those narratives they they kind of get off like scot-free so when i go to the tape i never feel the same way <laughs> so when i'm in that space thing remember because it's moved now right so it moved into that new space and the space is very big it's very open it it, it reflects that kind of notion of what modern art is you can it's all about your interpretation so when i'm in that space i'm interpreting that space as a nice space it's a kind of modern space I'm not thinking of the of the kind of Tate and La connection of all those things there that are quite obvious. 
in most in most museums. So whether that's by, by design or whether it's by coincidence, but it's worked, right? Because until you said all those things, it's not a thing you really think of directly. It's not the forefront of my mind. How you have the capacity, scholars like you, to make us reimagine what these spaces should be, I think it's so powerful. And I, 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 can't, I come from a similar school of thought as you. So like I think of, I sort of think of these museums as not necessarily not necessarily representing me, but not telling me the story about my heritage, but also people's heritage around me. I, I just think that that retelling of the spaces is so powerful and doing that for kids as well. It, it made me sort of frustrated reading back, reading what you've done, because it was so brilliant. And it's like, actually, how many teachers or how many curators in these spaces are talking about these spaces in an anti-racist way? To kind of like answer both of your questions, because I think you're both touching on like the same point in different angles. Um, so museums are set up, right, to be these spaces of education. They're meant to be benevolent. They're this kind of neutral space that you go and you become acquainted with the world around you. You become educated and you leave enlightened. That's the whole process of museums. They're meant to be like your, your friend or this kind of like nice caretaking authority figure that doesn't quite exert its power over you in a kind of menacing or dictatorish way. The nair underneath that is that it reinforces dominant attitudes and dominant ways of thinking and coming from a kind of critical race theory I would say it reinforces whiteness and cultural whiteness of middle class attitudes and sensibilities. If we say that's like the norm of how museums operate then Going back to what you were saying, or both of you were saying about you go in, you go to Tate Modern, it's like this, you know, progressive space, it's kind of forward thinking, there's artists and really challenging work. But the baseline is that it's a space that is designed to reinforce a particular attitude and thinking about what art even is. And then the question is, well, whose art, like whose art becomes foregrounded as the way that art should be considered? And then how do I and other critical scholars then enter into that discourse and say, well, actually, when we're talking about modern art, we're talking about a whole history of actually, like I said before, colonial exploitation and that modern art is predicated on the theft of West African and Islamic and Oceanic artefacts that themselves are never considered art, but always artefacts. And then there's this very murky distinction between art and artefacts. Artefacts are never art. They're in the tradition of craft and folk traditions. They do not enter the discourse of art history ever because art history is about fine art paintings, about visual art, it's about sculpture, now more contemporaries about performance and photography. Artifacts will always exist in the ethnographic and anthropological setting. Conveniently, it's always going to be non-white people's creations. And so even in the kind of framework of how we discuss creativity, it's inherently racist. So a site like Tate Modern is just part of that long legacy of reinforcing these kind of like colonial attitudes and then you work with young people and children and how do you kind of communicate that in a way that is accessible to them and use language that they can connect to and histories and stories that they can connect to and I think like part of like really informative of like anti-racist and radical pedagogy is being able to work with people where they are right and being able to find out mm -hmm what spaces and communities they inhibit and they're coming from what their own histories because I was working with young people from Hackney who come from a multitude of different cultural backgrounds they weren't just African Caribbean they were from many different some were East European some were South Asian some were mixed heritage like you know a whole heap of different histories is in that room how do I or how do we even respond to young people and these very complex histories that they inhibit but also raise like critical consciousness around like the society and the communities that they live in but most importantly it's that young people know this like I'm working with seven-year-olds who can identify racism and I'm reenacting oral histories they know that word and they, and they experience that word like on a day-to-day -day basis so it's not like it's things children and young people don't know what my role is what our role is is to equip them with the vocabulary and the understanding about how it works in various different ways that is like <laughs> that's incredible yeah. like yeah, it's yeah. shocking but that's it isn't it that is how like in your face it is now, i was gonna say like similar to what in sociology so if you look at durkheim and how he studies the like the aborigines like you're primitive you're they can they can never produce art because you just you, just, you haven't reached that level yet. Art is the sublime. 
it's what the Western Europeans do. Exactly. It's, it's a consistent thing. Without a doubt. Like, it's the level... Am I allowed to swear? Of course you can. Yes! Swear okay, cool. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> it's the level of fuckeries. I, I just want to be really straightforward. It's like... Love that word. It's I the love level that word. of absolute fuckeries. It's a great word. It's, fucker- <laughs> it's complete fuckeries, right? Mm-hmm. And it... it it doesn't make it's so illogical it's logical right it doesn't make sense but it does make sense so to create this like really intricate complex hierarchies of inclusion exclusion of who has art who doesn't have art who has culture who doesn't how that builds like builds into frameworks of like civilization and modernity and being you know part of a society at the very like basis of this still and appropriate the same people's culture that you claim they don't even have and use it as the foundation of how now in this current age of 20 well maybe not anymore or for a long time in 2020 going to take modern and seeing picasso and be like oh wow that's he's so talented he's a genius he's amazing and not having any thought process that he's literally copied the work of like west african sculpture it, it, it's just a level of fuckeries of how colonialism and coloniality as like a psych- psychosis actually as a, a psychology that exists is on every level designed to always keep black and brown people outside of its system and outside of like knowledge production and cultural production so yeah we'll have these crazy frameworks oh. that no i was gonna say we have these crazy frameworks that are sculpture from you know the fun tribe where it's clearly people creating art in how they view themselves even at the time of when the work was taken it was considered non-art because it wasn't a literal representation of how sculpture was meant to be at the time in the 1900s we look at like a lot of west african sculpture it's like distorted faces and like you know the dimensions are much bigger it's like slightly upscaled like you know it's it's playing with different abstract. types of form that wasn't seen as art it's abstract that wasn't seen as creativity that was they were seen as like you, you don't know what you're doing you're why are you using wood <laughs> you know you're not using clay or porcelain or anything so when you think about yeah. things like the renaissance renaissance it seemed to be is like a big shift in human development but if you went to mm. i don't know like you said if you went to aboriginal tribes they're doing different things different concepts just that the eurocentric philosophy hadn't reached that point yet so they saw us exactly as, or saw those people as uncivilized but obviously you're never comparing life with like but that's what they did on their first encounter and I'm sure people assume it's one way. I'm sure the people they evaded did the same because that's how people think. I'm superior to you. One of my questions for you, Janine, particularly thinking about this stuff and the absolute fuckeries, as you said, is how do these legacies live on within, let's say, the curators and the staff that run these places? I don't want us to get into like talking about individuals, but how, does it embed in the practices of the museum worker? Like, is the, the museum worker access anti-racist thought and working processes or not? Can they do that? Um, I've gotten in trouble for naming individuals, so I won't do that to myself again. <laughs> but to speak, <laughs> to speak in the round <laughs> and not to speak on a particular institution, but to speak more widely about cult, the, the sector, let's say, let's put it that way. Um, I mean, that's an interesting question. So can you be an anti-racist curator or museum worker in a history that exists to do the complete like opposite to promote racism and exclusions of various different oppressive behaviors i would say no because that doesn't mean the work that you do is bad or the work that you do is poor quality either yeah. but i would say no in a sense that you're walking into this kind of history where it, it is it's designed at all levels from the most intimate and intricate and invisible to the most overt to always remain that a European culture is always going to be at the top of that hierarchy at every single adventure like I said it doesn't mean that the work that people do is poor quality it doesn't mean the work that people do can't be transgressive and challenging and provocative I think all of those things are possible but I think when you're working in a paradigm that is inherently based on exclusion you're going to be always caught up in that cycle what I think is interesting is when people choose to place themselves outside of the context of the museum um, outside of the context of the gallery space and to work in different ways I think that's much more progressive and I think that's where actual anti-racist and anti-oppressive work can happen because you're liberating yourself from that confine you know you're working in a different set of paradigms but in a space like some of our oldest institutions I've read at Tate 
for example, war text that was written in the 1800s. And it, it's racist. <laughs> Some of it is like racist. So it's just even, and that's been up there for like, hun- you know, over a hundred years until someone pointed it out. Often a member of the public to say, mm, that doesn't read right. It's very culturally insensitive. And then they have responded as they've done to change it and apologize and, you know, like to amend that. But once something exists in that way, you can never take back the hurt that it has caused for those groups of people. Mm-hmm. You can apologize, you can amend, you can repatuate, you can do all of those things, but that's a reactive way of being because the harm has existed, the harm has carried out. And that's why I think it's hard for someone to be like a truly anti-racist curator or museum worker within the context of the museum and cultural heritage sector. Reading some of Paul Gilroy's work in the Black Atlantic, could not the museum be a space of transnational transnationalism to somehow mm. surpass the national because it kind of fits his description of everything in one you can see the crisscross of cultures that you unite in this space so in this space it does represent nation at one point because it's in this country but also inside it it represents different nations now some have been by conquest some have been by from from being allies there's a whole crisscross and there's someone just been by natural migration and immigration so the whole story of human history in one place exemplifies the idea that we should we have the boundaries that we put in place are arbitrary this is a transnational story so is this a way of kind of overturning the modern overturning those structures that we speak about is it a possibility can i just say as an I fyi i've only started reading curay like all of this week very i just started reading the ain't no black in the union jack and i actually quite enjoyed that Brilliant. i really really enjoyed that um, i just read a chapter i don't read things like in chronological order i just like read chapters when i feel like reading a chapter yeah. <clears throat> and so i was reading the one about diaspora and he's just basically talking about black music ge- genealogy and i'm just like oh my gosh this is actually brilliant but how he's written it it's got like his critical first and he's got like interviews that he's done with like people both first-hand and i suppose second-hand interviews that he sourced and it's just really nicely written and i've just started reading the black atlantic and i quite enjoy that as well yeah. that's the only gilroy stuff i've ever that's what you need to know that's I've what you need to know in my house for years so thinking about museums but also in particular thinking about the archive and what tiso just said about the possibilities of the museum space i guess what i'm sort of inclined to think about there is Think about people like Sergio Hartman, who talks about like, the archive, but also the missing pieces of the archive and who gets included and who is excluded and who's invisible in those conversations. Like even if we have the museum as a space or the archive as a space for to make us think in a more imaginative, imaginative way about our futures and our past, you're still relying on people's subjectivities. To answer, so Tisa, to answer your first question, okay, so I also like to make this argument, and I think I'm, it makes people really uncomfortable, but I said what I said in it. <laughs> Boom, love that, love that, love that. <laughs> like, the British Empire, from its inception in, like, what, the 1600s, the idea of, like, having an East India Company, the Royal African Company, that is transnationalism. Like, the British Empire... It, Britain as a space has been transnational for f- over 400 years. Globalization Correct. is yeah. colonialism, right? So mm-hmm. just the very being of an empire will always be a multinational, multicultural, multi-ethnic site, a transnational site because of what imperialism and colonization is. And museums inherently embody that. Like there is no, we, we can't not not say they don't because of how artifacts work. But also, like I said before, in the context of art museums, like these were merchants invested in the same companies that were then going abroad and occupying other lands and then bringing stuff back. And we're seeing art, you know, paintings of tea that is not indigenous to British, to British land. Um, or we're seeing black and brown people being depicted in you know the 1800s i really randomly on my twitter started like just posting like representation of black and brown and non-white 
um, people pre-1948, because I think it's important to recognise that we existed here pre-1948. There's been a long, like someone like Liverpool is a classic example of a long-standing tradition of there being a black community for centuries. And that's a history that gets lost. We've been here physically via colonial money and commodities moving around. We've been here forever. And so museums reflect that transnationalism. Now, in how they operate in terms of speaking to those histories, not many think of themselves in that way because I think they still are bounded by it being a national project. And you can't, Britain isn't a national space. It, like I said, it's an, it was an empire. It has an empire. We still have a commonwealth. It's always going to be transnational in how it operates. I think it's interesting that museums rarely do that. A site like Tate Britain does that occasionally. So like Frank Bowling had an exhibition last year. Um, he's a Guyanese abstract artist. His work is like amazing. He should be as famous as Hockney. He went to the Royal Academy like Hockney was in his same year, but didn't, black guy from Guyana didn't make it. Still alive, still a practicing artist. He's still in the UK, but you know, he got snubbed from art history, from modern art. Um, his name doesn't make it into the history books in the same way that Hockney does. He's a big man in his 80s, you know. Tate only recognised his his practice and his legacy that he's been doing for 60 years last year. And how many Hockney exhibitions have we had? And not just that Tate either, you know, it's the whole, like, set yeah. So these are the kind of, like... Um, tensions that exist when we speak about transnationalism and about the idea of the archive because you can have someone who's still physically living breathing existing frank boning lives opposite tate britain like literally five minutes opposite his studios there and you're still excluded you're still alive you're not even dead let alone when you die <laughs> you know so the idea of like histories and who gets included it's it, it is predicated on who is the person collecting that history. And often, unfortunately, it's not people who look like you and I. And even when it is people who look like you and I, often sometimes their the interest isn't to collect and preserve us. And so even just having that as an intentionality, I would argue it's just a critical standpoint to make a decision to decide that you want to document communities like you or, you know, communities impacted by an empire is is a political statement like because you're then having to speak back to the empire you know to say why are we not here why have you forgotten us but i think it's interesting that it kind of linked to kind of some of the other stuff that you've written janine so the article you wrote about about reparations and there's a the concept of time mm. about people not having time because we don't have that time to collect that time to reflect then it, it, someone else is going to do it if we don't do it, right? And that person does that for their own specific purposes and their own agenda, which I, from their point of view makes sense. Take the example of Lord Elgin. So the Greeks are at war. I'll just take your stuff. You don't want it. You're too busy. It's too late for you when you want it back because I've realised the value of it at that time. So we don't have that time to reflect. So they tell our story. As brown and black people become more vocal and we have the space to do that, we, we're, we're telling our story right now. This is our narrative. And so it's about us mm. because we don't have those financial links, those deep financial links into those places. We could have we could have that moral argument, but moral arguments don't go too far in those places without the money to back it. So we could go to the Tate and say, look, it's morally right to tell our story. You want to hear our voices. We can give all these postmodern narratives about hearing the kind of the unheard voices of the unseen. But those arguments don't matter nothing if you haven't got the money to back it up. And I'm finding that now, like I'm seeing institutions right now. If you haven't got money, your story is getting pushed up part other side of the museum where no one goes. Definitely. I think racial capitalism plays a huge role about how that works with the preservation of whose stories we collect and remember. And even like black bodies, right? Again, I said what I said. I love Stuart Hall. Like, in fact, I adore Stuart Hall, like to absolute, literally probably one of my most favourite critical thinkers ever but there's a reason why we have such a rich understanding of his work of his thinking of a preservation of his legacy right and I'm going to be very honest to say because it's also part of how why establishment decides who they want to 
which black bodies, which brown bodies, which non-white bodies, or, and gendered bodies too, who they want to preserve. For whatever reason why Stuart Hall exists in a particular machinery where his legacy, his thinking gets preserved. But then you have someone who's like his age mate and his contemporary, like Kamal Brathwaite, who, who recently died earlier this year. He was a Barbadian like critical thinker, poet, writer, and his preservation doesn't exist in the same way. And we know that him and Stuart Hall were brethren. Like, we know that they were running town together. Like, we know that they had a deep, concerned friendship. It's interesting mm-hmm. how certain people, there isn't a, the infrastructure, there isn't a machinery in place to preserve them. And when we look at someone like Stuart Hall, he wasn't in a rust. he didn't even want to finish his MA. No shade to Stuart Hall. He's smart anyway. He went to Cape, what, Oxford or Cambridge to do medieval literature. He was like, bummed out. Oxford. Oxford dropped out and then ended up in Open University which was a very intentional position about where he wanted to place himself as a radical black scholar he could have been anywhere he could he could have gone to any Russell group university he wanted and they would have accepted him but he chose not to so even in that as a positionality he chose to place himself in a space where he still wanted to be accessible to the everyday common person, right? Mm-hmm. What I'm trying to say is that you can be someone like Stuart Hall, be very radical, very transgressive in your positionality on so many different registers. And yet if the kind of cultural machinery of how memorialization works and you get picked and you get sided, then all the funding, all the resources will be allocated to you. If you're someone not like Stuart Hall, and that's not his fault, by the way, but if you're someone who did the same amount of activism, same amount of work, then you won't. And it's, it's also about how do we like challenge that as a framework because it actually erases so many other people that were his contemporaries, not just him, but many others. And it's like, what... I guess what sense of agency and responsibility do we have? Do we do like the Huntleys and create your own archives? Do we really make the most of spaces like Beast Black Culture Archives, George Padmore Institute, like all these archives that actually do exist in, or in London anyway? How do we kind of really resource them so that we are always ensuring that all of our heroes and sheroes are being remembered in a space of equity as much as possible? Talking about Stuart Hall there, are you thinking about hierarchies of racial privilege? So thinking about colorism, also thinking about mm. class as well, him being from a middle class background, and also as well as him intentionally sit- situating himself in open universities, still having those proximities to class privileges mm. and how that gets memorialized by culture is, is important. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, um, I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And I, I use Street Hall as an example because he spoke about it himself and that's the real tea. Like, yes, yes, <laughs> he never yes. hid it. Like, and that's why I really like him. Like, he was so self-effacing. It's like, yeah, no, I see what's going on. Like, I understand the machinery. I understand the framework. He never, like, not acknowledge what was happening around him and his positioning. And that's, I would like to be the type of scholar that I want to be. Like, be able to be like, no, I see it. I'm going to call it out. If you are very familiar with Street Hall, like, he talks about that, his own family and the colorism that existed in his own family of he was like the darkest person in his family and how he was you know marginalized in his own family by his mom and how his sister was you know a very light-skinned woman and she fell in love with a dark-skinned black man who was a doctor so even his class privilege was not enough and his and his mom sent his sister to a mental health institute because she wasn't going to marry some light-skinned man to like keep the color of the family you know it's like it's he his own biography speaks to these very like dark places of like anti-black racism much later like when I was reading his writings in the 80s and 90s he does bring in these his personal biographies and how he situates himself within that narrative and you know the reflections that he has um and I think that's interesting I think what we don't have to do is kind of use that as like a metaphor or framework to think about that we don't erase people on the lines of gender and sexuality class skin tone you know or even just like proximity to be in the global north like there's scholars in the global south that get erased who are part of that same like 50s, 60s, 70s kind of like conversations or post-coloniality that we don't talk about as much and not unless they do like they make it internationally you know I think there's so many different like power dynamics that exist about erasure and who gets seen and who doesn't get seen in the archive both by white establishments but also by ourselves as well. Why do you think Janine and I I think this talks to wider sociological questions that I think we think about on the podcast why do you think people don't like talking about that stuff as much 
as in especially if there's someone that benefits from those things why do you think it is that people struggle with it I think it's because it makes us like having when you are the person and you embody both a mix of oppress and oppressor identities it's so uncomfortable to see yourself in this vector of like nuance because it's like but I'm black and I experienced like racism and I experienced this but then you might be a man, you might be straight, you might be middle class, like, or whatever other elements of privilege one might yeah. have to be able to um, truly understand that these frameworks exist to benefit you. Like, just to make it very personal, if you don't mind. For one of my chapters for my PhD, I'm writing about my experience with being a, a black middle class girl growing up in Newham in a working class area and going to a comprehensive school in the predominantly black and brown working class girls, but having my white teachers treat me better when I would like basically not never ever be punished when I was just as naughty as bad as like my black working class friends. I like never getting sent to the head teacher, never being put on detention. Mm-hmm. My unruly behavior being seen as something good, like, oh no, she's challenging or she's, you know, she's assertive. Mm-hmm. Whereas like my black friend called Shaniqua is rude. And you know, like the, the mm-hmm. element of how class does create a huge kind of playground of how we get treated as black and brown bodies and I was just reflecting on writing about him reflecting about due to how I speak and how my mum speaks and my the profession of my mother and going to parents evening and they're you know they're picking up that my mum is a professional black woman that they are going to treat me differently because they're like oh shit like we can't exclude her and when it did happen my mum came down on them like a ton of bricks she was like I want to know how many black kids you're excluding for the same thing how many white kids I want to read your policy like my mum wrote a dirty letter you know like she came in and she came in with the energy of when you are an educated black woman and they're like oh okay Mm -hmm. we can't treat Janine in the same way for silly things that we can other working class children whose parents might have English as a second language who may not be educated around like institutional culture in the same way and so these kind of frameworks exist so it means I can leave secondary school with good GCSEs and educationally Mm -hmm. progress and my black working class friends won't and we would have Mm -hmm. the same experience well similar experiences going to the same school with the same teachers but we walk out with very different life opportunities the way that class operates that's that cultural capital that you had and that cultural Mm -hmm. capital you you Mm went to exchange that for respect for the ability to be paid attention to those black kids lack that cultural capital and what happens invariably is that We've built our own cultural capitals, own cultural codes on the outside. And so going back to what you were saying, what do we do when we exist inside a system? Do we build our own thing? And I think that's the only way you can do something to recognise and remember people Mm. that you want to remember because it's impossible. Mm. So I watched the um, interview with Wiley and he said, the problem with Stormzy was because he's in the system, the system's captured when he's blown up. You can only blow up once because once you blow up once, they don't see you again because the system made you. He goes, pirate radio station, the people, my people made me. So I will never go anyway. And it, there's, a, there's some truth in that. Because we do our Completely. own thing. We're not going nowhere because it's, it's my people, my thing. And when I'm talking to my people, I know my people in different ways. Such a good way of thinking about it. And just thinking about both of the both of your contributions then. Like, for me, like, even when you see, like, our black and brown peers talking about anti-racism within the academy or let's say the arts like if I'm not taking people with me that are part of the communities that I want to voice and represent for me as a light-skinned mixed-race black woman if I'm trying to create spaces for more inclusion of black people and there's more people that look like me that are talking about it then that's a problem that's what not what I endeavor to do someone like me has much more capital whether it's to do with issues of colorism I'm now firmly middle class if I'm not bringing black women dark-skinned black people with me if I'm not bringing working class people with me I'm struggling at the moment it's talk to you both about this I'm not saying anything profound here and there's plenty of people that have said this stuff but I just think it's always worth reiterating I think Tito I love the fact that you use the (laughs) metaphor of grime and like how black culture works. I, I think like, I'm here for this. Kind of, I'm here for those narratives because we need to use them. No, it's not even being wrong. Yeah. That's what I mean about like methodological frameworks. That's a whole methodological framework in and of itself, right? In terms of how do we talk about 
our culture formation, how do we talk about the way in which different bodies are able to navigate those spaces? And then how do we understand like the outcomes? Like that's a whole fucking methodology <laughs> that exists that we experience yeah. and we see every single day. But we don't talk about it in that way. And we don't even have to, like we don't have to intellectualize it. Like that's also just okay. And we can just experience it. But we are we are producing these knowledge productions all the freaking time. But I think there's a truth. Again, it goes back to the Street Hall and the Kamal Braithwaite and the Stormzy and the Wiley or the Daves and all these other like mandem that are coming through, right? And so someone like Wiley, who has come from a whole genealogy of black music. One, due to his age, he's like, what, at least a good 15 years older than Stormzy. Through right. Jungle. He has been through Gary. He has, he has held you. You know, like he's, he's seen all these different frameworks, but then we go all the way back. All those frameworks come from sound system culture. And so all we see here is just like the readapting, the redeveloping of a framework that goes back and back and back. And you go all the way back to the Caribbean, we go back to the drum of Africa, you know whether we know that we're doing or not that's what we're doing and someone like Wiley might be a bit more culturally attuned to that history to understand that he's working on that legacy so no he does not need white mainstream journalism and you know accolades to give him the esteem and the credibility and his value because he can take it from his community because he understands he walks in on that tradition. I'm not saying Stormzy doesn't, FYI, just in case he's listening, but um, <laughs> I'm saying that the way he listens. Stormzy, of course he listens. Stormzy, I'm not blaming you, bruv, innit? But the way in which Stormzy has been picked <laughs> up and like blown up by white mainstream media means that he's been extracted, he's been plucked out of his own cultural legacy right his own kind of like missioning of how other black bodies perform and so as academics I think you know we need to operate in a similar kind of way that are we going to be not to create a polarization but do we operate in a way of being a stormzy where you do the whole like academic tourism and academic celebrityhood and careerism or do we position ourselves part of this long history of like anti-racist activist tradition that dates all the way back from the Haitian revolution earlier it's about how do we see how do we see ourselves and I think to respond to your question about then the hierarchies and oppressions and then we speak to that because we understand these are age old see that point where you said he's extracted boom now the problem is Mm. when you get extracted you fulfill the capitalist dream you're the individual who's going to go from Mm. nothing to something you pulled yourself up by your own hard work and it fits that narrative so when 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 a man like me comes from from the ends and you someone picks you out from no one and just from your own hard work and you make it this is why some of our people forget who they are because they're the ones they think they make it it fits that model it fits that narrative you've been selected and in its most kind of facile form but britain's got talent Pop Idol, all those things there mm. represents picking someone out of the crowd and elevating them. Pop Idol. Well, I couldn't think of anything else. I couldn't think of anything else. And he doesn't want to talk about it, but I know Pop, we all know Pop Idol. Jesus. <laughs> I couldn't think X Factor, X Factor. Look, I'm doing it. Man like Gareth Gates, man like Royal Young. <laughs> <laughs> He called, he called Diddy Puff Daddy the other day. I was like, two. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm still calling. It's always going to be Puffy. Always going to be Puffy. Listen. You can't tell me anything otherwise, yeah? Listen. <laughs> always Puffy. <laughs> this P Diddy, who that? Who's this? <laughs> but I really wanted to get you to talk to Janine because you're the first person who I saw present on it and then I just sort of did the reading that you recommended having seen you speak about it is rest as reparations mm-hmm. so you wrote about it in Vice in early 2019 could you talk to that a little bit Janine yeah totally so just to yeah. kind of um be transparent so two artists um Fanny Sosa and Neville de Costa I was working with them on their project called Black Power Naps and they invited me to first just help them with research like just they're like hey you're, you're an academic you're doing PhD stuff help us research yeah. I'm like okay not my field but I can help out so first it was just us kind of just having ongoing conversations and just supporting them with research and they were like developing the kind of artistic conceptual framework of their of their installation and then as that relationship grew they were like we really want a critical piece of writing and since I was 
involved in the research stages they're like you know would you like to take that on so effectively they commissioned me to do that and then it kind of went out via fires as the kind of more we wanted it to ensure that it was written I wanted to show we all wanted it to show it was written in a way that was accessible to all people um and in a I guess accessible space and so not behind a paywall as many academic articles are and not too long as well I think it's about 2,000 words or something FYI I am developing it into like a more traditional academic paper but that I, I felt was really important to get that out in that way. This kind of just speaks to about how do we consider specifically black bodies that have been impacted by chattel slavery and the experience of the transatlantic slave trade and then consequently plantation politics um, where that took place. So in the Caribbean, in North America, in South America, but also remembering the coast of West Africa, because that's, you know, that's a geographical narrative that gets left out. Like we still have physical remainants of like Amina's Castle and other sites where enslaved people were held before they were forced to depart on a journey. Um, so it's about kind of understanding that money and capital isn't just like, you know, a pound sign or a dollar sign, that there's other capitals that we haven't um, been able to access. So kind of thinking like Bourdieu's concepts of, you know, social capital, cultural capital, all that kind of stuff. And how do we get, how do we collectively build ourselves in a way where we need to develop our own cultural industries or kind of financial progression? And you need time to do that. You actually physically need to have time to have an education, time to build a business, time to, you know, progress in society. And when you come from a group of people who have traditionally much lower life expectancies that haven't, in a period of like 200, 300 years, have not really shifted in terms of how between white and black bodies, that deficit, that gap has remained the same, which is really, really actually quite scary. So when you are a group of people who have chronic health issues, you're disproportionately imprisoned and incarcerated, you disproportionately have a lower life expectancy. These are all frameworks of oppression that takes time away from your life to be able to to build yourself like just on an individual personal level just be able to like get a job if you want to buy a house you know that kind of traditional way of operating and if you add all these people together and you then look at it on a collective cultural level then you realize that so many people have been literally robbed of time and that serves and benefit racial capitalism to constantly deny black bodies time to build because if we enter capitalism it disrupts the framework of then being a small group of people exploiting a massive group of people so that's kind of what I'm really interested in and I'm interested in the idea of rest being a opportunity for black bodies to recuperate because when we sleep it's where you build new cells it, it's you know it has health benefits mental health benefits physical health benefits and ultimately rest is just really good for you and so if we had access to more rest then I'm trying to argue that it would be hugely beneficial to our social progression I, I give you I'm trying to make through this through this constant I guess attacking all the time it's created a level of resilience in us that I don't find yeah. in other groups of people imagining your day-to-day. -day. And given given the current situation, the current moment we're in, where the world's shifting and people need resilience, black and brown people are well-placed to handle what's coming next. Because people in Africa, they, they can't do social distancing and all that kind of stuff. And what are they saying? What are you getting worried for? Their attitude is completely different because this resilience, and it's resilient, we haven't asked for that resilience but we've had it. And Europeans, look at look what happened. Look what happened when the disease come. They went and bought Lurol. They didn't buy anything to save themselves. Lurol, right? So can you understand the mentality? So I know, I'm, I'm prepared to be, I know what it's like to be discriminated against. I know what it's like to be at the bottom. But these people are feared now to be, they're feared to be at the bottom. We might have that time to rest, but now is the time for us to be awake, to be moving, because we've developed that resilience. And that resilience is going to see us through. Like, it's been tough. I, although I do agree with you, T, that there is that resilience due to being like consistently exploited over generations and generations. 
I guess one of the things that I find really powerful about Janine's writing on this is that it would be good to have the choice to not be resilient. <laughs> it would be good to be. It would be good to. Yeah, yeah. It would be good to have the space to not have to always be like yeah. that. That concept of time, that metaphysical, paying really close attention to the current moment we're in, a global pandemic. I think there's a lot, a lot that we can take from it, but equally, will we have the space to take from it? Probably but, not. See, this is the thing. So, because when, when, I didn't have that space growing up, I was that kind of trauma. So, when I did find out stuff about the untold narratives of slavery, and I think, right, I'm going to school and you're not telling me the truth. I'm going to museums, I'm not seeing myself represented. It's, it's that shock. If I had that time, I've had that time to process it a lot better because when I did get here, when I, cause I didn't have that time, it made me angry because I'm thinking the mm. myth you, you misrespond to me that we're all meant to be equal was never true. So if that's not true, what is true? And it made me angry as a young man. Mm. It's only as I got older and I had that time to reflect as an older person, I understand a bit better and I'm willing to look a bit deeper. So I think, Ginny, you're arguing, I think it's a, it's a, it's a well-made argument. I think I get that, you know? To respond to like some of what you both has raised. I, so what I'm saying, like there's completely the lived experience, right, as well. And I think like, yeah. Tito, what you just said really speaks to that lived experience of being denied your history, being denied truth-telling, which I would really call it, and being able to then place yourself within, like, physically, like, your body, who you are, but place yourself in history as well. And when, if you think about so much about Black scholarship and, and like, academic scholarship, it's like us having to go back to the past, which isn't a bad thing, to understand our present, right? It's like, how, wait, how did we end up here? Because the official narrative is just, we're just here, we, you know, we just arrived. We woke up one day and it's like, ah, oh, there's all these people. There's no kind of understanding that there's, an empire happened and people were moving yeah. around and all that kind of stuff and that actually displaces people because it doesn't situate your biography your physical material but also spiritual body in a reality and then we look at and then the point that I make is that the same reality is, is fabricated it time is a social construction it does not exist in a way that we are told to function because its main predication is to always uphold capitalism. That's why we have time. So many other cultures view time and have different types of calendars, which make sense to them and actually is materially and spiritually beneficial to them. A West African tribe that has a 10 day calendar. Like, I know it, it, it took me my brain's like uh, a 10 day but they have a 10 day calendar they do not do seven days I'm gonna have to quickly google that one because I was like I can't just say that on a podcast what you're saying really makes sense so if you look at like different cultures like for example Islam has a different concept of time so they see time as kind of going yeah. back so the, the, the time of the prophet is the time to be emulated so their time in a sense of looking backwards if you have a sense mm. of looking at aborigines their, their sense of time is uh is vast i can't really conceptually understand it because they could still speak of the ice age through verbal histories mm. right so how do they understand time is completely different unfortunately for us for black and brown bodies who caught up in the diaspora we've been caught up in that western notion of time which is very mm. linear and it's based on exactly. ever-increasing productivity, exactly. right? Ever-increasing productivity. But exactly. the idea was ever-increasing productivity, in kind of, as kind of John, John, John Maynard Keynes kind of put it across, was it would lead us to freedom. That productivity, because in, in that mm. time, every time we go forward, we're going to get more productive because technology gets better. We have more free time to do what we want to do. So we free ourselves from oppression. But it's never true. That hasn't been true because our desire is limitless. And it's not true for so many different reasons. Okay, so my whole thing is that we need to go back. Like, we need to always go back. We need to go back to enlightenment and, like, modernity and these, like, structures that underpin, like, our everyday reality. So the concept of enlightenment is designed to, one, reinforce a linear time frame for capitalism and productivity. <laughs> it is designed... <laughs> but, no, that's what it is. It's designed to create... No, it's that it. benefit. <laughs> <laughs> that is based on <laughs> creating disciplines of thought studies of thought that reinforce western ways of thinking and conceiving the world based on their extraction and exploitation of indigenous people's knowledges and then we have 
universities, museums, botanical gardens, zoos as like the physical manifestations. These are all frameworks of Western linear time frames to determine whose culture is in a modern society and whose culture isn't, which is why somewhere like the continent of Africa and other um, places, the Caribbean, Latin America, is always going to be positioned outside of time because they haven't gone through the traditional Enlightenment, Western modernity way of technological development, i.e. via the Industrial Revolution. Sorry, that sounded like a freaking textbook, what I just said, but like these frames are mechanical and intentional to always place us outside western linear time frame which is why part of me feels like maybe we just need to abandon that and going back to what you said when you're talking about Stormzy and um, Wiley about just creating our own frameworks but the frameworks exist like we have people from other cultures that have created time frameworks that could benefit us in in ways that doesn't harm our bodies and so when I'm talking about rest I am talking about how do we rest within a Western linear time frame because that is physically, spiritually, like all the things harmful to our, our psyches and our beings. We, at the very least, if we don't get money, we do deserve access to time. And I believe that because I come from a group of people who don't know how to sit still. You know, people around me are still being productive. We're in a pandemic. <laughs> like, it's so strange. So I was going to add, I said, so you see all this stuff, like what you said, I, Janine, this is my kind of thing at the moment. It's the whole philosophical base of the Enlightenment that needs yeah. to be called into question. But because mm. we are historical beings and it's time's gone, I'm part of that tradition. So I, I'm not looking mm. to abandon it because it's, it's made me and it's made who we are and, and it kind of given us mm. the kind of vocabulary and the kind of analytical framework that we use all the time. What I'm saying now is that we need to question that and you use other frameworks in conjunction with this to come up with something yes, new. I agree. A perfect example as to why. I was recently reading um, around the establishment of the constitution by Toussaint Louverture and Bailey when they kind of, you know, liberated people from slavery in Haiti, right? And so I was Big revolution. It's one of the best, it's the most interesting moments in history, I think, ever, like for so many, on, gosh, Jesus, on so many different levels. But the constitution was interesting because we need to think about this. Like they, one, taught themselves to read and write in French when it was like, you know, illegal. Then they're reading, they're reading like big enlightenment philosophers. They're reading John Locke. They're reading Kant. They're reading these people who do not fathom the existence of black intellectualism and bodies in their writing. But yet these former enslaved people wrote a constitution based on reading enlightenment thinking, but re remixed it and reframed it to center black bodies. And I'm like, Lord God, this is, a, this is what? 1797. Like we've been doing this scholarship for like, nearly 300 years like reading white scholars saying you've left me out of this narrative let me write my own thing and then place myself in it and then write it for an audience this isn't this isn't new like and I, when I realized that I was like wow like they these men literally just sat down there and wrote a whole constitution to live to make slavery illegal forever to to ensure that this moment in history could never ever happen again on Haitian land using enlightenment and rhetoric of humanity you see all the things we talk about about colorism and hierarchy in that revolution all those things were debated because you had blacks who were benefiting off slavery and you had the colorism there and the ranks and two silhouette he was a dark-skinned guy so you had the slaves who were at the very bottom you mm. had the middle class blacks who were in the middle and you had the whites at the very top and you had and you and also you had the europeans who were who are considering themselves above the people the whites that were in haiti so you had all these complexities in yeah. one place resolved resolve because they didn't start killing white people all of a sudden they said come on work with us some of them so it was a, a complex yes, negotiation yeah. and renegotiation of things to arrive at a constitution that served the benefit of everyone okay mm. it didn't go as planned because there were some mad killings but at that heart it is <laughs> you had the intention right the intention was there mm. and at that time remember they're fighting a big war they're fighting americans french and british people and one Everyone. everyone, everybody's coming. Yeah, this is everybody. Everybody came, and everyone, and they won. I love history, and I love all that. Reading about the Haitian Revolution, like I just can't believe I didn't learn about it at school. Mm. Like, well, I can believe it, but it's just so incredible. Like, if you don't know, get to know. Yeah, for <laughs> real. I mean, I read, I first read about the Haitian Revolution really randomly by chance. I was really young. I was fifteen. 
I read CLR James, The Black Jacobins, because it was like a book mm-hmm. my mum had in my ha- in our house. And I was like, oh, let me just read this book. And then I started reading. I was like, okay, Haiti. Like, obviously, I know Haiti. And then I'm like <laughs> learning. I'm like, oh my gosh, wait, wait, what? They had a revolution and, and they fought all these European powers. And then they wrote a constitution. And like, I was speaking to my friend about it. To certain, went to Paris, right? And we're saying he went to Paris. Like, if you're still thinking yourself as a slave, you would not go to Paris. Because you'd be like, they're going to catch me and string me up. He, he, in his heart of his heart, he clearly never, ever saw himself as a slave, which is why he dumped on a boat to go to Paris to negotiate the freedom of his of his countrymen. And I'm like, that's amazing to not even conceptualise that this could be the last time you never see your country again and your people again. But you, in his deepest aspect of his psychology, he would never he never saw himself as a slave. And Wait, not to say that he trusted white French people, but he he went there thinking, I am on the same level as you. I'm not any less than who you are. And that's the kind of energy I think we need to be walking with. <laughs> but it's interesting what you said, and it kind of tied back what we said earlier, that archival absence, right? So when you learn school, when you, when you go to A-level and maybe degree level, you learn about the age of revolution, 1799 mm. to 1848, right? So I know that back of my hand because I like the Enlightenment, I like European history. But that, that one important revolution is missing. French Revolution, American Revolution you might speak of, but definitely the French Revolution, but the Haitian Revolution is not there. You from, from 1789, you go to 1830 to 1848, don't hear that revolution. So I have to go find that myself. And in that, and therein lies the problem. But, if I find that myself, it means I have to create my own thing because I know mm. in every textbook, if I go if I go online, if I type in the age of revolution, the Haitian revolution will not be there. Taught it like going back to yourself being 14, 15 year old black boy in London being taught about the Haitian Revolution. That amazing, it would be, be amazing, amazing. yeah. To say as well, Jean, and it's in the episode notes looking at what you did with the Hackney Museum and those and the schools, and you had the parents and teachers saying how much they enjoyed like hearing about Windrush, just basically breaking down the empire and British history in a way that was inclusive, but also story that was true to what actually happened. Like it's so powerful and it's just so simple. Just tell the truth. Like it's, it's, it's like you say the tears, they don't want to do it. And that's what I guess we're, we're they totally don't like we have a curriculum that does not want to I, I actually believe in education. Um, as a site of um, empowerment, I really, really, honest to God, believe that education is one of the fundamental places where you can shift your consciousness and your mind frame and your self esteem just on like a personal, like individual level, let alone on a collective level. And if we had an education system that did that, we wouldn't have the Tories in power. It just wouldn't be possible. You know, there was a moment in the 80s and the 90s, again, going back to the archives, there's an archive called the Pantheat Collection at Tate Britain that I use for my research. And it's just a group of artists, most of whom South Asian, who were just collecting um, ephemera and leaflets and like teaching resources that was looking at anti-racist, anti-sexist um, education in primary school in London. And like the archives, there's like, it's massive. And I'm like, wow, if like, if that sustained itself properly up until the point that we have now, we would have such a, diff- we all would be, all three of us would be different people. We would not say that who we are now ain't great, but we'd just be different people. Janine, just to wrap up here, we're introducing this new section for this series, talking about what we're reading and what we're listening to. Can you tell us what you are reading and what you're listening to at the moment? Yeah, I can. I mean, I'm going to be real honest. I'm reading The Ain't No Black in the Union Jack by Phil Gulroy. Excellent text. Love it. Um, I'm going to be real honest. It was in my house for like about seven years. And, I wasn't, <laughs> you know, it wasn't necessary for me then. It came necessary for me this week. And I really enjoyed the writing and how he's positioning the historical history of blackness from the Windrush and how that shifted our mainstream culture, but particularly black Britishness. And mm. it, it felt necessary to understand myself in that way. And what are you listening to? Yeah, I'm listening to Doja Cat at the moment. I love her. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, we all should love her. That's amazing. That's yeah. The visuals, the visuals are incredible. Her music video is bang. T, what about you? What are you listening to? What are you reading? Well, what I'm reading is Reactionary Democracy by 
Ray Diamondon and Aaron Winter, our friends. Good book. Amazing book. Well written. Amazing. Really, really brilliant book. And what are you listening to, T? Now listen, because I'm bare old, right? <laughs> I'm listening to... I said this is old school garage, right? Listen, I hate new music. I hate everyone. Anyone that's new, I don't listen to. Not really. I'm listening to... Um, there's one track by Oscar G, and it's called Gotta Keep Moving. Big tune. Back in the day. I am reading at the moment The Art and Science of Portraiture by Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot and Jessica Hoffman Davis. I'm trying to write about participants in my PhD thesis in using portraiture. There's a methodology and it's about trying to talk, use histories and narratives alongside of biography. And then I am listening to podcasts at the moment. I think my sec- I think my input on this section is probably going to constantly be podcast. But Busy Being Black podcast is presented by Josh Rivers, and it's a podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Josh Rivers has got a really great series called Theory in the Flesh, which is excellent. I just realised I forgot to mention the podcast that I li- I'm listening to, um, and that is oh, Art and Age of Black Girl Magic by Bola Tajadeen. The art in the age of black girl magic. Like I've got a lot of time for that girl. Thank you so, so, so much for joining us, Janine. It's been brilliant. No, I really so had much. a lot of fun. Cheers, guys. Um, have a good, good afternoon. I like it. And yeah, just let me know. Have a good afternoon. <laughs> Likewise. You have been listening to Surviving Society with Chantel and Tiso. If you enjoy the podcast, and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform.